So I, I, want to, um, I want to share a little sermon with you, I think, that, that I've had in the back of my head for a while called, How Did I Get Here? Uh, and it kind of stems from a funny story. My, my parents will understand, and, and probably my brothers as well. Um, when you grow up in a house with six kids, um, none of your vehicles that you ever come home to ever have gasoline in them. So especially when you have six kids pretty close to the same age. So one, one Friday night, me and a couple of my friends were sitting around. It was late at night. Uh, Mom and dad were asleep. I'm sorry. Um, and we decided that, you know, we're from Clendenin. We'd never seen the outside world. So we make this great decision to go to the big town of Spencer, right? So I don't know if you guys have ever been to Spencer, right? But I had heard all these crazy stories and, and how wonderful Spencer was. So we jump, we run out, we jump into the car, right? <laughs> we jump into the truck, right? The old uh, Toyota T100, which is really good on gas. We'll get to that part in a minute. So we get probably about 30 or 40 minutes away, or 30, 40 minutes away from the house. And I just happened to look over and realize our gas tank's like a hair past E. Um, so I'm like, okay, cool, we'll get gas. I realize I forgot my wallet. Being 16, right, you don't plan a whole lot of things out super well, um, so I asked one of my friends, hey, you know, do, do you guys have money? Nobody. So here we are at this point, 45. <laughs> what is it? Yeah, I know, right? I know. What were you supposed to do with all the attractions when we got there? Uh, so anyway, so we get to Spencer, right? And we're, we're sitting in the, the Walmart parking lot. If you guys don't know, if you've never been to Spencer, there's a Walmart, there's a Taco Bell, there's a couple other really cool things as well, but that's, that's the run of it. Uh, we found that out. So... Um, we get to Spencer, and we put our heads together, right? You put all of this wealth of knowledge that two 16-year-olds can put, and we decide that the best way to get back home is to get on the interstate because vehicles get better gas mileage on the interstate. So we go to the one person that we can find in the Walmart parking lot and ask them, what's the fastest way to the interstate? Guy's like, go right down the road. You'll get right on the interstate, no time flat. So if you've never been to Spencer, you know that that was a total lie. So... <laughs> We drove for what seemed like three days, but it was probably 25 or 30 minutes. And by the time that we make it to the interstate, we were a hair past E now, right? So we end up making it home, but not without lots of, of fist fighting over who was wrong and whose idea this was and who should have brought money. And, and, and I remember thinking the whole way home from Spencer to Clendenin, which, by the way, if you go the interstate home, you go all the way to Ripley all the way back to Charleston, then all the way back up 79. Made a ton of sense. <laughs> Anyways, I remember thinking the whole way home, how did I get here, right? Why do, why, why do we do this to ourselves? How, how do I always end up in these situations? Which when you're a 16-year-old, you think that a lot, right? So anyways, I started thinking a little bit this week and thinking about the world and thinking about, you know, we, we had a horrible upset yesterday. If you guys haven't watched the news, West Virginia lost. So, um, only thing in the news, I guess. <laughs> Anyways, so I started thinking about the state of the world and, and started thinking about, I don't know if you guys have been on Facebook, if you've been on, on Instagram or any social media platform, but everyone apparently has a political science degree now, right? right. Everyone is, is highly educated and, and the best way to run this country. Um, and I'm not going to argue with you who's right or wrong, um, but what I do know is everybody else will. So... <laughs> I started thinking about, as a country, how did we get here? And, and I started thinking about, um, in Scripture, in, in, in John 8, we're going to read a couple passages. Um, I, I'm going to uh, kind of expound on them for a second. So, Jess, if you can pull those up. 
Uh, for the record, Jesse found out this morning that she was running slides. So good job, Jess. Thank you. Um, so John 8, uh, verse 1, we're going to go through 11. Hang with me here. Um, so it says, Jesus went to the Mount Olives. Um, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All of the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in, in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Uh, now, in the, in the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman, but what do you say? Um, and th- this they had said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus uh, bent down uh, in the ground and started writing in the sand with his finger. Um, and as they continued to ask, he stood up and said to them, Let him who was out sin throw the first stone. And once, once he bent more down uh, and wrote on the ground again, uh, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning uh, with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Uh, Jesus stood up and said to the woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Uh, go uh, from now and sin no more. Now, wh- what I find interesting about this passage is, is it's such a parallel or such a difference between our world now to the world that they lived in, that they would just carry a lady and throw them at the feet and say, here is this woman who was caught in sin. What are we supposed to do with her? And I bet for a second, or, or probably often, the lady thought in her life, maybe in that moment, but maybe in other places as well, how did I get here? What put me in my life that made me want to, to, to live the life that I'm at, but now I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus, and it's not because I want to be here. How did I get here? Right? And, and I find it so interesting, right, as we talk about the lady, um, that Jesus' answer for her was grace, and for them was a little tougher. Right? And I wonder if, I wonder if, if, if the Pharisees and the Sadducees ever sat, sat down and thought, how did I get here? How did I get from, from where I should have been, from what, what Christ, or from what God wanted me to become? to where I am now. And so I want to take a look at a couple things as we talk. Um, you know, the, the woman's life, for whatever reason, was in shambles. It wasn't in, a great, it wasn't in a great way. And I think so often when I look at people's lives, I look at my friends or I look at people on social media or, or wherever else, and I think I wonder how they got here. I wonder who, who told them or who taught them to become um, like what they are. Um, so anyways... We're going to talk a, a little bit, uh, I'm going to paraphrase a couple Bible verses throughout, um, throughout this message, but the, the heart of the message that I want to get to you guys is, is, how did we get here? How did she get there? How did they get there? Right? So, um, sometimes I think it's, it's like, in, our, in my trip to Spencer, right, with my friends, which was somewhat comical, we get in a how do we get here point of view, and we're exhausted, and we're running on fumes, Right, and we're hurt, or we're scared, or we're ashamed, and we get to a how do we get here? Right, so I find it so interesting um, with the lady that that her life brought her in front of Jesus, and she didn't go there willingly. She didn't want to be there. And I think so often in our how did I get here stories, that's the truth. Right, I see people come to me oftentimes for prayer requests for someone who's sick, uh, prayer requests for, for somebody who needs help. Maybe it's financially or maybe it's provision in their work. Right? They didn't necessarily plan their life out that they would be sitting in front of Jesus, but their how did I get here story brought them to the feet of Jesus. 
It brought them so that their need or, or, or their um, whatever it was that they needed in their life at that moment brought them to a how did I get here, right? It brought them to the feet of Jesus. So sometimes we show up to Jesus because we just decide we're done with this life, whatever, right? And we're here. Some of you guys are here this morning for that reason. Some of you guys are here this morning. Maybe you don't want to be here, but you don't know where else to go. You see, there, there's, there's a story that I think we all know uh, through in the Bible, and um, just in case you're taking notes, um, sorry, yes, um, in Luke 15, it's, it's the prodigal son. It's a very well-known story. Um, we, we have a father who has two sons, and one son wakes up one day and decides, I want everything that's owed to me, right? I, 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 want, the, I want the land, I want the inheritance, I want everything that you have for me, I want it today, and I'm leaving. And you have the other son who sticks around and stays with the father, right? And and as the story progresses, we see that the son goes on and he lives his life, but eventually there's a famine in the land and eventually his, his, how do I get here story comes to a head and he's sitting and he's looking at the ground and he says, if I could just eat what these pigs are eating, right? If I, if I could just live the way that they're living, I would be better off than I am now. His how did I get here story wasn't rosy and it wasn't wonderful. He didn't wake up and say, this is the way I'm going to follow Jesus. His story put him in front of Jesus in a way that he didn't want to be. Um, and so as, as it progresses, we see, he says, if I can just go back and I could be one of my father's slaves because they're being treated significantly better than I'm being treated now. And, and you think that this this guy goes from being kingship, right? He goes from being a family that was able to give away an inheritance that allowed him to go live a crazy life. He was up here and he decides to live here, right? And now he's saying, if I could just go back. And it's interesting to me that he he didn't say, if I could just go back and tell my father, I'm sorry, everything will be great. He says, if I could just go back, I could become a slave for my father. I could become a worker for my father, not a son, right? Not part of the family anymore, but if I could just go back and I I could become a slave for my father, I could live better than I'm living now. And I find that so interesting because a lot of the times when I read that, I I thought, how silly. What what dad wouldn't want you to come back and be a part of the family? What dad wouldn't want to, wouldn't welcome you? But so often we get in our own lives and we get in our own sin and we get in our own, our own shame and we just think I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to live like a son anymore. I'm not worthy to be a part of the family. I'm not worthy to be welcomed into the family anymore. I've ruined it. I've gone too far. I've done too much. My how did I get here story is too big for what the father can handle. And that's what the son thought that morning. And I think it's so incredible in our hearts that we find ourselves in that same situation. We read these Bible stories and we say it's basic math, 2 plus 2 equals 2, right? We know the Father's going to take him back and it's going to be great. But when you look at your own life and you look at your own sin and your own shame, that math becomes a lot more weird than it, than it did when you look at his, right? So I, I find it so, um, just so crazy for the prodigal son that when he shows up and he has this speech prepared, right? He's probably got 14 pages of notes like when I preached with Ryan, right? That he's going to tell his dad, dad, I'm sorry for these reasons. I messed this up. I did this wrong. I'm sorry. And before he can even open his mouth, his father says, there's my son. Come on, let's have a party, right? He says, here's, here's my coat. Here's my ring. Here's my shoes, right? It, it, it's time for you to come home, right? I find it so cool, um, you know, we look at the coat, which represents a covering for his shame, right? And the ring represents his authority. He's being reinstated back into the family. But I love that he gives him his shoes because it tells us that he's going somewhere, 
right? It's not just go and do, right? His father took him from, from this, this shame-filled moment and handed him everything that he had and reinstated back his sonship in that moment. And he says, go, go slaughter the, the fatty calf because we're going to have a party. Um, there's a second brother, right? We'll call him the not prodigal son, right? The not prodigal son stayed home and he did all the right stuff. And one of, the, one of his friends comes by and says, hey, your brother came back, your dad's throwing a party. And in that moment, the, the, the not prodigal son gets frustrated, right? He's blown away. How, how did, why is my dad throwing a party for the guy who left? He basically stole from us. He took everything that we had. Why is my dad throwing a party for this guy who doesn't deserve it? And I think oftentimes we read the prodigal son's story and we think to ourselves, I wonder if he ever thought, how did he get here? I wonder if he ever thought, why did I make this stupid decision? But in the same sense, we have the brother that has to ask the question, how did I get here? That my brother was gone. My brother left. Figuratively speaking, we're talking about this, we're talking about this church. We're talking about each other. Right? If, if I knew that one of my brothers had left and came back, I would be delighted. I don't care what happened in the moment. Right? And so I look at the, the religious and jealous reaction that the brother has, and I have to ask, did he ever stop and think, how did I, how did I get here? Why is my heart so calloused that I wouldn't rejoice at my brother coming back home? The father, when he goes to the father, the father says, you don't understand. My son was dead, and now he's alive. That's why we're having a party. Amen. So looking over, you know, just some of the points and some of the stories, we see a little bit of an interlap um, between the two, right? We have the brother who was similar to, to the woman who, who that they brought Jesus uh, and threw her at his feet. Um, in that, we have uh, someone who, who chose to live a life that was different, right? They, they chose to live a life of sin. They chose to pursue, um, pursue their own desires, and in the same thing, we have the Pharisees and Sadducees, right, who throw this lady at Jesus' feet, and we have the not prodigal son. Both of those people show up to the Father for different situations, right? But both of them equally needed, but needed the grace and needed the love that he provided. Now, church, when I read these, I'm challenged because I remember how often and how quick I am to point a finger and said, if, if Pastor Frank didn't live like this, then, then he wouldn't have all these problems. But I'm reminded that, that when I came in with all these problems, right, it, it was the father that picked me up and it was the father that handed me his robe. It was the father that said, I, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. So I want to look at, at three different things that I find in this story um, is we obviously have an issue with sin or idols. And, and I think that, that sometimes they go hand in hand, though they're, they're, they're kind of mutually exclusive issues. So when we look at our, our sin, right, our sin is, is anything that causes us to miss the mark. The words that they would have translated from the original Hebrew would have been um, anything that goes past the boundary or anything that causes us to miss the mark. So when we look at our sin, and, and hear me out, church, because so often when you guys, or when we hear the word sin, we think, that message is for the lost, I'm already saved. Don't, don't be deceived. Because we all have things that challenge our allegiance, they challenge our pursuit for Christ. They challenge what our desire is. Um, and, and those things eventually become idols that we worship, that we make time for, that we spend our passion and we spend our energy and, and all of the m money that we make or whatever investing in these idols. 
right? We begin to worship the creation instead of the creator. And so when we pursue our idols and we pursue our sin, um, we begin to displace our allegiance. And when we do that, you know, I like to look at the story of Lot, and you see that Lot didn't necessarily just leave Abraham and walk straight into the streets of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he progressively went a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. He moved closer, he moved closer, and moved closer, and eventually held office in the city. And when we build our idols, right, though we're not building totem poles and, and we're not building big fire pits or something like that to our idols, we're still building idols. Our sin is still taking root in our heart and growing. You know, it's funny when you look at, um, when you look at sin, right? When we plant plants, you want to pick the best sun spot. You want to pick where it's going to get the most water and it's going to culture and grow. But when we pick sin, right, we want to pick the darkest, deepest, easiest to conceal thing and we want to cram it down into our heart. Now, the difference between sin and, the, and plants are is that, that the farther you cram that sin down, to the deepest, darkest spot, right, where nobody can find it, the better it's going to grow. That's where sin and that's where our idols work the best, is when we hide them and we cram them down and we we make sure that nobody else can find them. Um, That is when our sin does exactly what it's supposed to do. So so I challenge you guys um, to look at your lives, not not just people who are lost and people who are outside of the church, but Christians, we're called to examine our hearts. We're called to look and see the things that challenge our allegiance to Jesus Christ. I challenge you to take a look into your heart and see the things that keep you from worshiping with abandon. Keep you, to find the things that keep you from giving without looking back. You know, Christ calls us to serve and Christ calls us to be like him. And if you've been in Connect Youth Group, you, you know I, I preach the Bible verse that, that when, the, when they asked Jesus, what were the greatest two commandments? And he says to love me. And to love your neighbor, right? To love the Lord that guy with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? I find it so interesting that we as Christians will oftentimes look and we'll say, this message is for somebody else. And Pastor Mark actually preached a message years ago about, um, you know, it was one of the most dangerous spots that we can be in as believers is sitting through a Sunday service and saying, this message is really good and it's for somebody else and I hope they hear it. Because we can take these words, right, and, and, and we can see when you parallel them to your life, you can see the strongholds that you need to tear down. Um, one of the other things I think that we see in this, in this family, right, between, um, between the uh, lady that, that, that was brought to Jesus and, and the, the prodigal son is, is we see a, a, a spirit, I guess, of unforgiveness, it blows my mind that the brother who's grew up, I, I have multiple brothers, some of them are here, um, would say that, that, or would see that his brother has gone astray and now he's came back and the first thing that he wants to look at is how dare he? How dare he do all of these things and then not come back? When we have unforgiveness and we, and we allow that to culture in our heart much like sin, right? We want to push that thing down and we don't want anybody else to see it, right? We don't want anybody to know that we have unforgiveness in our hearts, so we put on our A face and we walk into church or we walk into our friend groups and everything's fine. In reality, we have this this tree of of sin or this tree of unforgiveness growing in our heart, and it's thriving. We're called as Christians to cut that out. We're called as Christians to examine ourselves and find those things and remove them. Um, You see, I think unforgiveness works best when it's left alone, in and of itself, Right? 
um, unforgiveness will cause us to be angry. It'll cause us to be resentful. It'll cause us to be self-reliant. Right? The message of the cross is that, that we rely on him and his works. I can't have forgive, or unforgiveness in my heart and say that I love Jesus. He said, you can't hate your brother and say that you love me. You have to deal with both of those issues. Amen. When you have unforgiveness in your heart, you know, when you live an unforgiving life, I think that you live an unforgived life. And that's a scary place to be. Jesus told his disciples directly after telling them to forgive people of their trespasses that what you give out is what you'll receive. When you harbor an unforgiveness in your heart, it changes who you are. And everybody can see it. So I I challenge you, church, to find unforgiveness and kill it wherever you find it. Because if it doesn't, it, it will kill you. It will kill your families. It will kill your friendships. It will kill your relationships. It will kill your marriages. Um. Unforgiveness is one of the hardest things to deal with because oftentimes we have a hurt and we have a pain and we have this thing that we want justification for, right? We, we, want, we want to see these people get what they deserve because they've said something, they've done something, they've, they've caused some kind of offense, some kind of trespass. And unforgiveness is so hard because we want that. But the reality is, is, is that as we don't forgive people, we're the ones that's changing ourselves. They may not even realize what they've done to you. They may not even realize the hurt that they've caused you. Unforgiveness finds you where you are, and it roots itself down, and it destroys every relationship and changes who Christ calls you to be. We see in the prodigal son, we see an unforgiveness when his brother comes home, right? And I bet if you were to go back before that, that their relationship probably wasn't like that. Don't allow yourself to be changed by unforgiveness. I think one of the other things that we see in both stories is a little bit of religion. And this is where I want to spend the brunt of the time, Christians. So often we get stuck in religion. We get stuck in, in, in believing that we have it right. You see, when we talk about sin and we talk about unforgiveness, it's easy for me to stand up here right now and tell you guys to fix your sin and fix your unforgiveness. But religion tells me that I don't have to do that. So one of the, the, the drop-dead indicators for religion is, is that, that you are publicly telling people no about something. You're publicly persecuting something, but at home or in private, you're celebrating it. And we do this with our own sin oftentimes when we're quick to point, Pastor Mark did this, and he's such a terrible person, and I can't stand him, and you guys should hate him as well. But I'm going to do the same thing at home. That's what religion tells us. Religion tells us that when we do all the right things, we'll be justified. That if I just work harder than somebody else, I'll be more justified. I'll be a better Christian. Religion tells us that I don't have to change myself. You see, and the thing is that I find incredible about religion, you know, all sin is a blinder, and I think all sin is a paralyzer. The Pharisees and Sadducees had the Son of God directly in front of them, face to face, and they couldn't see him. Religion keeps you from seeing God for what he is. It keeps you from seeing Jesus and all of his glory standing directly in front of you. Religion stops you from seeing Jesus. It stops the growth that Jesus desires in your heart. You know, so often, you know, just kind of going back between unforgiveness and and sin and and religion as well. So often we, we plant these seeds and we pledge our allegiance to things. And when we become religious, right, we, we, we think, um, 
we think that I'm better than the church down the road. I'm better than, I'm better than Caleb because I listened to seven worship songs today and he only listened to six. I spent 12 minutes in, in prayer and worship this morning and he only spent 11. Terrible sinner. Right? And religion puts us in this area that we think that we're pitted against each other. Right? It blinds us from seeing God and it blinds us from seeing the, the, the beauty of the, of the local church that he created. And I find that so incredible. Um, as we look at religion, right, um, our hearts always end up solidified when we follow religion. You see, Christ calls us to examine our hearts, to break our hearts, to have compassion, right, for the people that we see on the side of the road as much as for the people that we see in this building. But when we start pursuing religion instead of pursuing Jesus, what happens so quickly is, is everybody else becomes a problem. And only me and Jesus have this, this friendship. Church, we're, we're called to take our religion and we're called to crush it. Because if we don't, what's going to happen is, is, is we're going to kill off um, ourselves. We're going to kill, kill off our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's such a detrimental thing to do. I see so many people take a grandstand and say, I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor and, and I'm this and I'm that. When in reality, they're on social media tearing everybody apart because they have different political beliefs or different social ideas or, or whatever else. Right? I, I find religion to be so dangerous because not only does it remove your passions, right? and not, not only does it remove what, what you're excited about, but it also haunts those around you. Yeah. Right? Religious spirits and religious people can tear down what God's doing in a church or tear down what God's doing in a body of believers. Good. Good. It, it's, it's such a hurtful thing for us to have. Um, you know, w- when you're religious, you stop seeing people as wonderfully and beautifully made. When, when you're religious, you stop seeing Jesus for what he is and all of his glory. When you're religious, you don't see your brother or sister in Christ that needs help. Because everybody else has become a problem. So when you look at these stories, right, and you, and you see what, the way that Christ has handled his, handled his people, right, and, and you see in the parable of the prodigal son the way the father reacts to, to both children, he could have turned the prodigal son away and he could have turned the not prodigal son away at any time because he's the father. But instead, he grabs both of them with grace and he grabs both of them with love. And he says, you don't understand what's going on right now. Right? He was redeeming the prodigal son and he was redeeming the not prodigal son. And I find that to be super incredible because sometime at some point in my life, I've been both. I've been the one who left Right? And I've been the one who's looked at the one who left and thought, terrible. Both of those times, just like we sing in worship, when we, we, we sing, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful that we get to worship and serve a God that calls me right out of the broken and out of the damage and says, you're still my son. Amen. Amen. That no, no matter how many times you leave, no matter how many times you come back, you're still my son. And I find that to be so ridiculous and so crazy because just like the people with unforgiveness, I want, I want justice sometimes. You see, the funny thing is with Christ and the funny thing is with both of these stories is neither one of them got grace. Or not, neither one of them got justice. They got grace. Amen. And I find it so crazy that no matter how far they ventured out, no matter how far they went away, Christ still calls them back. He still calls them back with grace. He still calls them back with love. You know, coming back to the, the, the how did I get here story, right? 
watching these things in the news over the past couple weeks and the way that people have talked to other people, the way that Christians have pledged their allegiance to one side or the other in the election. It's heartbreaking to me because when, when you take your allegiance and you take your passion and your energy and you promote anything other than the kingdom of heaven, you're missing your mark. You're missing your point. You see, I, I know it's corny. I know it's a little cheesy, but when it comes down to it, I'm, I'm called to be a Christian. I'm called to love Christ. I'm called to pursue the kingdom of heaven. And sure, there, there's overlap and there's things that, that, you know, there's social ideas, I think, that we have to form an opinion on and that we have to take a stand against or for. Amen. But when it comes down to it, I, I, I'm, I'm significantly more interested in the kingdom of heaven. My heart is set on the kingdom of heaven. This place isn't going to be here forever. Right. So when I get to a how did I get here point in this message, right? I think about the, you know, religion and, and unforgiveness and sin aren't the only three things that get us there. They're just what I picked to talk about today. We're called as Christians and we're called as believers to take our, take our flesh and crucify those things. We're called as Christians and we're called as believers to find the religion in our heart and get rid of it. The unforgiveness in our heart. Right? When, when, the, when, the, 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 or when the, the disciples asked Jesus, how often do I have to forgive this guy? He told him 70 times 7. Which was a made-up number, basically. He's telling them, you don't stop. You forgive every single time. You know, I, I think when I examine my own heart, and, and I've spent a lot of time doing that in the past couple weeks, it's hard because it's easy to point everybody else's sin, and it's easy to say, this person messed up. This person made a mistake. This person's terrible, but, but, but I'm not. And it's easy to fall into that place. It's easy to get religious. It's easy to get, um, to get our, our, our allegiances mixed up. But the reality is, is that we're called to pursue Christ. We're called to lay down everything. You know, I get kind of cracked up sometimes when we're worshiping with the kids because we get to this point in worship where you just don't, you don't want to leave. You want to sing another song, you want, you want to sing another verse, you want to sing another chorus, and you're, you're tagging in 30 different songs or whatever just to keep it going because you don't want to leave because that, that, that moment is so sweet. And I think so often we go from being that, right, like we're here in worship and, and, and we're feeling what, you know, what Christ has for us maybe, um, and we get to a point where we're willing to sacrifice that for something else. There's, there is nothing in this world political party, um, something that someone said to me or, or whatever else that's going to keep me from going to where I want to go, from seeing the kingdom of heaven. So Christians, I challenge you to take, take some time this week, take some time today. We're going to have an altar call here in a bit. Take some time and examine your hearts. Take some time and find out what are the things that have pulled you away. What are the things that you've walked, walked out of your relationship with Christ for? What are the things that you're harboring down inside, the things that, that are keeping you from seeing Christ? Christians, I challenge you guys to, to, to take some time and examine your hearts. Um, when you're dealing with religion and you're, you're dealing with a painful spirit, I think, um, I think so often it's, it's just so easy. It's so easy to skim over yourself. Yeah. And we're called with a sober mind and, and we're called to pray. But those things be revealed. Um, 
I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come up. I want to spend, I just feel led with all of the junk and, and all of the stuff that we've seen on TV here recently. I think it's, it's been hard to find rest. You know, I think when we start pursuing our own lives and we start pursuing our own version of religion and our own version of a savior, it's hard to find rest. And, and when it's hard to find rest, sometimes I think it becomes easier to give away what Christ has asked us to keep sacred. Amen. So church, what I feel led in my heart just to spend some time in self-reflecting. We've got, we've got some pastors here that, that, that want to pray with you, and they will. But I feel led to spend some time in reflectance and spend some time in coming back to what God's asked us to be and what God has asked us to do. So if you guys don't mind, we're going to bow our heads. Um, I'm going to pray over you guys. We're going to have a song of worship. If you, if you need prayer, we're going to have people up here for that. So let's bow our heads. God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your sacrifice. Thank you so much for what Calvary meant for us, that we can have freedom, freedom from religion, freedom from, from, uh, from sin, freedom from the idols that we build in our lives. God, thank you so much for what Calvary represents. God, I pray that every believer in this room would take into consideration, take into consideration what Calvary means, what Christ means, more than a, more than a political ideology or, or more than a relationship or more than a job or an extra hour spent in the office, but to take some time and, and to reiterate and reevaluate where we're putting our passion, where we're putting our excitement. God, I pray that you give every person in this room the grace and the strength to hand those things over. God, that we would be totally devoted to one thing, and that's you. I think of Mary and Martha when, when Christ showed up to their homes. And, and, and Mary was going through, and she was, she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha was going through the whole house, and she was cleaning, and she was getting food ready because she had a party. And Jesus told her, he said, you are troubled over the many things. You're troubled over the many things, but the one thing that matters is right here in front of you today. God, I pray that you don't let myself or anyone in this room miss the one thing that's here today. That over all the many things that we get troubled, God, all the things that, that we see that, that compete for our allegiance or compete for our attentions, God, don't let us miss the one thing that's important. God, I, I pray that, that every person in this room sees you in a better, more glorified way than they ever have. And Lord, I pray that, that you would give every person the strength and the courage to take care of the idols that we've built in our lives.